1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. On today's podcast, we're changing things up a little bit. Instead of interviewing the author of a recent book, I'm interviewing another podcaster about their narrative podcast. So today, I'm interviewing Joel Anderson, staff writer at Slate, co-host of Hang Up and Listen, and the host of seasons three, six and most recently, 8, of Slow Burn. On this episode, I chop it up with Joel about season 8 of Slow Burn, titled, Becoming Justice Thomas. Welcome to the podcast, Joel. Yeah, thanks for having me on, bro. As I mentioned uh,
1: offline, I was like, you know, I'm not an author or a scholar, you know what I'm saying? So I appreciate you, you know, welcoming me into the canon, uh, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, a lot of Thanks for
2: having me on. Of course, man, of course. And, hey, you know, you're... The author of many uh, great articles and some of my favorite podcast moments, man. So, you know, shout out to Bomani Jones, you know, yeah. at the right time and, and, and such as well, man. So, uh, which which is where I came to uh, came to know you and your um, phenomenal work. And as someone who has recently got into um, uh, experimenting with narrative podcasts, man, you don't you say you ain't a writer, bro. but to be able to put together those scripts, those and and that, that ain't no joke, bro. Well, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean,
1: and so in one way, like I have not published a book, which is, I guess, like my literal interpretation of author. But I will say that anybody, um, I, I do hope that maybe there's a sort of a shifting of the understanding of what it takes to put together narrative podcast. I would love for that to counter as a book, like even in academia. Don't ask me how I know this, but I know that academia sort of takes a dim look at like podcasts and like in terms of, you know, working in it. And um, I was just be like, no, man, this is a lot of work. This is like writing a book, I think. But, um, you know, maybe maybe the, the, the academics and the scholars are listening to your pod. Maybe they can get out there and, and carry that word out there to the ivory towers or whatever. So, because uh, I think yeah. a couple of podcasts should, uh, this, this sort of work should count as a book. And, I, and, again, no, I know that, be, you know, being an author of a book is a totally different thing, but um, it's still... Still, still requires a lot of work. Somebody told me, they're like, yo, like all the words you have to write to put together a narrative podcast, not as many as you need to put together a book,
2: you know? So. Absolutely. And it's also why, like, as I'm moving towards finishing my dissertation and trying to put together some of my syllabus, syllabi rather, I'm placing a uh, narrative podcast in as a, as uh, one of the, you know, writing components because the way that I would, um, like, like you just said, I would, um, uh, uh, try to push the folks in power is like look, the amount of writing that you need is equivalent to whatever the standard is that we need to have students write in a given semester for a class mm-hmm. and so so yeah man we you know so we i would say we could talk all day about podcasts but technically we're, we're given about a given about an hour, or so let's let, yeah. get on with it, brother. <laughs> and so, um, you know, like I said, after you know, multiple seasons of Slow Burn, where you produced a season on Big and Tupac and later the LA riots, um, I'm interested to know what drew you to producing your third Slow Burn uh season on Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas.
1: So, I wish I had a more high minded explanation for how I landed on Clarence Thomas, but um, I just knew not even long after uh wrapping up uh season six of slow burn about the la riots that i wanted to work on something about clarence thomas it just seemed like the right time and the right story um you know for years people have been talking about how interesting and fascinating his background story was people that had read you know all these other books and you know read long profiles of him or whatever and in some ways i just wanted an excuse to read all that in uh and not just be left with all this knowledge of Clarence Thomas. I wanted to go somewhere with it, right? Um, So that was a piece of it. And, you know, I kind of was thinking about it. The three seasons I've done, they're all basically early 90s stories when I was a teenager. Um, And so it just, that time was really just sort of fixed in my head. Like, you know, when I think of like the stories that were sort of were the dawning of like my political and uh, personal awakening, whatever, you know, like it was the Clarence Thomas thing. It was LA riots. It was the birth of hip hop, or you know, the 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 the, the shift in hip hop at least. So I'm just kind of stuck in that. What is uh, what is what is now say stuck in the '90s? You know what I'm saying, So that that's that's me. Um, but yeah, I I just I knew that it would be challenging. I knew that it would be interesting, and I was just kind of hoping for all the people telling me, "Oh, Clarence Thomas is really complicated, really an enigmatic person." Um, well, I wanted to see for, see that for myself, uh, to be honest. And I thought that once I pitched it, yeah, I'm thinking, how could that lose? You know, people will, we may not get people to advertise. They may not want to have anything to do with it, which is, yeah, that, that, that's a bad choice on my part. But in terms of listenership and interest, I thought that like, it would really, uh, strike a chord.
2: And it did. I've been listening back and forth to it. Um, not only for preparation you. for this interview, but just for in general. Um, and I noticed, man, you've been doing the 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 run of all the different shows and such, man. So so I, I've been seeing some of your other interviews, and so um, you know mm-hmm. one of the things that I find is interesting. <laughs> about, you know yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have many questions, but uh but but I some of them I'll just leave for offline. But um but but yeah, speaking of these other seasons, I'm also interested to know like you know we, we're just talking about you know writing, or and you know sometimes I have some authors. Um, how do you get better over the course of time? Is right, mm-hmm. you like me, you're in graduate school and then you become a professor and then have a long hopefully career where you're improving. So as someone who's now done two seasons and now finished the third, how did producing the two prior seasons slogan mm-hmm. help you in any way with Clarence Thomas's season? C- so I'm not a ten
1: thousand hours guy, you know. Uh I'm not, you know, I uh, like that the Malcolm Gladwell uh theory uh other stuff. I'm not that. But I do believe the underlying um, argument is interesting. Like, basically, everything is more reps. Like, you get better the more you do stuff. And so, doing those previous two seasons, uh, the one on Big and Pac and the one on LA Riots, it helps because you learn so much more about the process. I was sort of raw when I came in to do season three. I I'd not worked in audio or, or, or podcasting before. And so... You know, when you're putting seasons together, you learn. Okay, you get more efficient about the voices that you're going to want to showcase. It's short stories that. What I did season three with Big Impact, they brought me in. Slate brought me in to do that season. Oh, um, we didn't have a lot of time, right? There's not a lot of time. There's never enough time to do production and to do all the things. But I come from a background in journalism. I want to talk to everybody, like I just anybody that's sort of connected to the story you know, I want to get them, talk to them, write it down, whatever. In audio, you don't have time to do that. It's just not possible. And you got to be more, you got to be uh, more thoughtful about the people that you want to talk and what you talk to them about, and all that sort of stuff. So that's one thing that really helped, I think, for this season. Like, I, you you learn, okay, if I get this person, am I really going to get what I need out of them? How essential is that story to the story that we're trying to tell? Uh, I also think, you if you do this more you get better at writing with a listener in mind as opposed to a reader um writing for the ear is different than writing for the eye and um uh, my career it started at uh the Associated Press that was my first job out of college and the, I I worked in a, a the 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 capital Bureau of Texas which not which is not Austin but it was like the control bureau which is the bureau that controls all the other bureaus in the states i worked in dallas and sometimes you had to work shifts one of the shifts was writing broadcast copy for all the radio stations and tv stations around the country learning to write for audio is a particular skill like it's more active you can't like you didn't can't get lost in description and uh you know adjectives and things like that like you got to be really precise so that that helped and then obviously um just getting more comfortable with my voice and talking into a microphone like wanting to hear the way you sound like how does my voice sound am i bringing enough energy am i emphasizing the right words what words can i not say right like juror juror is a very difficult word for me you know what i mean uh i've got this southern thing you know what i'm saying so it's just, just ask like and that's i know that that's also sort of racialized right uh, but it's like a thing that I'm in this space. I want to try to get better at talking and the words that I say and everything else. And so like, that's a big part of it. Just all the reps you get and talking into a microphone. And so, um, so yeah, so I, those two, two seasons really helped prepare me for this. Like, I do think that this is the best low burn season I've done because I'm, I'm just so much more experienced than I was when I first got into it.
2: I love that. I love hearing that. And, and you're so right because, um, you know, I had a, massive speech impediment growing up and so i went to speech therapy from kindergarten all the way from fifth grade wow yeah so i had a really intense lisp um and so for me like i would not have been able to to your point about you know even knowing some words that you know to the listener's ear you can hear the you know remnants of that speech impediment like on the s and h's um, yeah. and such or SH and sure. such but um, it also makes me think about to your point uh, the reps and you okay. as a and we haven't gotten into this but you as a former college athlete as well you know you're someone mm-hmm. who you know you know about what the reps are like to be able to refine plays and such um, and, and so I also wonder whether or not that experience also in a in a longitudinal way kind of also maybe prepared you maybe uh, maybe not directly, but maybe a little bit. That's an interesting question. I do think being an athlete
1: helps in a couple of ways. Podcasting is an extremely collaborative endeavor. Um, writing is sort of solitary, like nobody else can do it for you. You know, you gotta be there and night. You have an editor and editors are supposed to help you write um, and, and shape things, but podcasting, I got people listening to audio. I got people reaching out to people. I have to entrust the people on my staff to read things I'm not going to read and that they're going to get, that they're going to take from what they read a thing that would resonate with me, right? So I'm entrusting a lot of people to do a lot of different things. And like, when you play football, you ain't out there by yourself. You know what I'm saying? I was running back. And so part of being a running back is I got to trust that everybody's going to do their blocking assignment. And so it it really, that part of it helps with the teamwork. And then I really do think that, you know, man, an athlete, man, you kinda of find out, man, you're not gonna die if you work hard. You know what I mean? Like and this is this is the hardest thing that I've ever done. You know, I'm like in ch t- professionally in terms of the work and the, the grind and how much time we spend on this stuff. Like it really it's really, really difficult. But when I think about like the days that it was most hard, you just you go back to days being in ninety five degree weather, you know, running gas there and being like, Well, you know, I got to get it done. You know, like, I mean, I, I just got to get it done and you know, nobody else can do it for me. So, um, I definitely think that like, yeah, being a, a former college athlete, athlete any kind, like you play in high school too, you get so people are familiar with that. And that experience definitely can just, uh, um, it, it, it definitely, there are some transferable, uh, experiences and skills, uh, that, that you can call on in a moment like this share.
2: And speaking of calling on, uh, transitioning, it looks like Clarence Thomas has called on, uh, someone named Harlan Crow quite a season. and so as a transition to our next question, um, you know, as you move forward with the planned season, uh, as we now know, um, stories regarding, uh, billionaire Harlan Crow's financial and personal relationship with Thomas came up. How did, if at all, you react to these revelations since it seemingly, they are directly connected to the story of Thomas. And his rise to prominence today well yeah it would be hard to say that it didn't affect the story in some way what
1: the one way that in which it really did not impact the arc of the story that we were trying to tell is that the story sort of ends at the second set of confirmation hearings in 1991 this is before he's met harlan crow um and is on the bench right um we don't get into like his jurisprudence any of that other thing you can watch he's on the bench So it didn't affect that, but um, anybody that listened to episode one knows that I've gotten to Clarence Thomas' Mala's house. And that is a house that was at the center of some of the reporting revelations um, through ProPublica about, you know, Harlan Crow owns that house and much of that block and had done all this other stuff for him. So like, there's no way to duck that. Like we had to address it. Um, And that was good. That was a good thing. I was happy that there was other people that brought that, that not only were covering that story, but also that it brought light to the sort of stuff that we were doing. And so we worked that in, and obviously if you make it all the way to the end of the season, we sort of land there. We land on the Harlan Crow piece of it and what he's done and the influence that he's had in Clarence Thomas's life. Like, I don't think it fundamentally changed the story that we were trying to tell, because it still was, about, as you mentioned, becoming Justice Thomas So his childhood, college years, his professional ascendance but um it didn't affect that piece of it but it did you know, we did have to respond to it and, and and make sure that like you know hey we're on top of this like this is a this it you're right it is reflected that relationship with Harlan Crow is uh not all that dissimilar from working with uh the guy that first hired him out of law
2: school
1: um uh, well hold on man now I can't what I can't was it uh, Danforth was it Danforth? There you go. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Senator Danforth, man. Look at me I, I, I told you I played football but free with that But uh, but yeah Danforth who you know is a heir to the Purina fortune a rich guy himself um, Yeah, he's a rich guy And so like that's the guy that hired him and brought him into the into the Republican Party in the first place And then all this other stuff. So anyway you know, it, which is to say that it is sort of all tied up in there and uh, the whole thing. Like the, the, these revelations are sort of reflected in his path, you know, uh, on, to the Supreme Court. But yeah, it didn't. It The story we were going to tell is the story we we're going to tell. But it, it, it definitely spiced things up for us. And like I said, I mean, I if I don't think if the reporting had come out. I don't think that the interest in the podcast, there would have been some interest, but I don't think it would have been like it is now. So
2: there it is. And so. You get into this in the podcast and you had briefly mentioned it before. Um, but I thought it was right to tear here a bit. You had mentioned before about, you know, Clarence Thomas being a misunderstood. Yeah. So as someone who had gone through the season and um and, and Britain and helped produce this, what do you think is most misunderstood about this? Well, oh, I mean
1: I let me see if I should start I mean I don't think he's as complicated as people think that he is, Um, you know, uh, and I think that the people that think he's complicated are people that don't know black people very well. Which is what I would say is that, like, there's this sense that he's a part or separate from black people and black communities. And I actually think he's a product of black people and black communities, and he's a product of black conservatives. Um, Like his professionally, he got hired at the Missouri attorney general's office out of college. Right. And out of law school and that a white guy, he didn't get into the Republican Party. But sort of his ideological shift came from exposure to black conservatives. Um, and I actually think that, you know, Clarence Thomas, man, he desperately wants the ear of black America. Like he when he first got started out, he went on these speaking tours. He, you know, the, the way that he rises the prominence is that he goes to a black conservative conference in San Francisco in 1980. Like he's very desirous of you know making connections with black conservatives and black Republicans and bringing you know proselytizing to black Americans. Like he really, I mean, he would love to be on like a shirt with like Malcolm Martin, whoever is you know gets to be in that fourth spot on the T-shirt. Yeah. You know what yep. I'm saying? Like he would, he would love that, um, but he doesn't. So, but but you know, obviously, you know, most black people find the things that he believes to be repugnant <laughs> or you know odious. You know, in um, a full turn from like, you know, the civil rights movement. So, um, so yes, yeah, so I think that's sort of the big thing. Like, I don't, I don't find Clarence Thomas to be a complicated person. I think if you're a Black person that grew up around Black people, you know plenty of Black people who are like Clarence Thomas and believe the things that he believes. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't think that makes him special. What makes him special is how he was able to acquire power and how he's wielded it. Um, not a lot of black people have ever had the sort of power or influence that he's had uh, in America. So that's what makes him different. And so maybe if that's part of the complicating factor, then sure. But um, I really think that, yeah, that all the talk, the enigma, the complicated, you know, all this stuff. I was like, nah, I mean, you just don't know a lot of black people. That's what, that's what that is.
2: And it also makes me think too, like, in terms of just the moment at which the season comes out, what we also have? The tear down of the thing that he hates the most, yeah. affirmative action. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I mean, you've come up in this world now. You, so you're a little bit younger than me. So I just like the conversations about and maybe y'all still have it, know. But the conversations about affirmative action um, in the 80s and 90s, like there are plenty of black people that don't believe in it. And I'm not not a majority or anything like that. But there are plenty of folks that are like, we don't need that. We can do it for ourselves. You know, we can build our own communities. We can do our own institutions, all this other stuff. We don't need the uh the largest of white people. We don't need the generosity of white people, we do it for ourselves. There are plenty of people that believe that. There are black people that you would not even consider to be a black conservatives that believe that, right? Um, and so yeah, man, so that's yeah, I mean that 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 piece of it that, you know, that he got a chance to, you know, dismantle um race-based preferences in America in higher education, that he was able to do that. Um, that's an extension of an old strain of thought within black conservatism. Um, and yeah, like that, he was the guy that got to be there and stand over it, you know, uh, stand over it and watch it die, uh, in this country. I'm, you know, I I, I assume, I hope he's proud of himself because otherwise what was it all for?
2: And, 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 you know, it's funny. I think about just like, um, the mask, you know, and thinking about like, what are, you know, I. My my girlfriend and I were—we had a conversation recently about uh, one of her friends, some of her friends saying uh, that they don't have an internal monologue, and I'm thinking like, "Huh, that's weird." But then, second of all, in this conversation, what would, what is Clarence Thomas's internal monologue? To your point, because does he? And and I think you know, and I know you come from the journalism Mm -hmm. world, where you, you know you take a particular slant on these kind of questions, but I do wonder, does he actually believe everything that he says? Yeah, that's interesting.
1: You know, so I saw somebody, uh, a person I really respect, I'm not going to say anything. They're talking about, oh, I don't think Clarence Thomas believes the thing that he says. Like, I think it's all, you know, um, it's all sort of a particular construction that he can rationalize the choices that he's made or whatever, right? And I was like, well, Given what we know about him, that'd be a hell of a long game. You know, I mean, there's no way that he thought that he was going to be a Supreme Court justice when he started out. And some of the things that he's been saying and arguing, even going back to the dorm rooms at Holy Cross, when he's at the Black Student Union, saying, wait, well, we don't need our own all black uh, dorm. You know, what I'm saying why do we need that. You know, I want and I want to live with my white roommate, too. You know, uh, a guy that was adamantly against interracial relationships early on in his life, right? Um, There's just, uh, (laughs) um, the things that he, you know, they, the people that were in the Black Student Union at Holy Cross referred to him as Booker T. Washington, you know, a fundamentally sort of conservative viewpoint on, like, race relations in America. So, you know, like, maybe some of this and the things he believes and argues and fights for. Maybe some of it, is all just sort of you know um, him trying to find an argument that fits in with his like desire for power or money or whatever, and that you know that he's lying to himself. But I just don't think so. Like I just think I don't think anybody could have could have plotted out that sort of a long game. But maybe I'm naive. I'm open to the idea, that I'm naive about it. But I just I don't I don't see that.
2: Agreed. Agreed. And so um, I want to pivot back to. Uh... Justice Thomas's hometown. We talked about this with Harlan Crow, and so one of my favorite moments of the season came actually quite early. Um, I believe it occurred when you visited Justice Thomas's uh, hometown of Pinpoint, Georgia, and uh, you were. In. And so, when asked by one of his relatives, I believe you said you were there to retrieve information for a documentary. Um, and and I think I know why you probably said that, But we know Slow Burn as a podcast series, but based on the narrative flow. It certainly can be considered a documentary. So with that long preamble said, Mm. after three seasons of Slow Burn, what does the podcast medium provide to you that other mediums uh, may not? Well, a a brief aside.
1: So when you you mentioned the documentary theme, so I was explaining my presence in the house of his mother, his 94-year-old mother, uh, when I was there. And so I just kind of figured if I say that I'm here to do a podcast, she's not going to know what the hell I'm talking about. You know what I mean? So a documentary... A documentary is sort of cl- about as close, in terms of medium and like the approach that we're taking to anything else. And you, I mean, you you could reasonably call it an audio documentary, right? So that's why I thought it was a better fit. And I came up with that top of my head. Now that I think about it, so you know, I get, I, I <laughs> that's where my mind went. But um, but you ask, you know, the, what does the podcast medium provide that other mediums don't? Well, um, that's a good question. Listening to someone is really intimate. Uh, and when you're, maybe I just as an example, you say to your girlfriend, "When you're dating someone or in a relationship with them, I mean, sex don't count the same as talking." You know, that? Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. you can't tell your girl, "Well, man, I texted you." Ain't that the same thing? <laughs> no, like talking. Um, talking is a really intimate form of communication with somebody, right? And it really opens you up. Like, it can make you more vulnerable. Um. And you don't get the, pl- I mean, sometimes you can plan out a conversation, right? And like, you know, we both, you know, you know, even do this, I mean, behind, you know, behind the curtain, you know, like we prepare when we when we right. jump onto these likes, right? Um, but still like, we've gone in directions that we didn't think we would go, like we've had a sides or whatever. And that's what talking can do. Um, and certainly for people for, who are interviewed, like um, there's a relief to not appearing on camera. I I found in my career when I've shown up some big stories in an interviews, and that's this is just when I'm in print. Um, and like TV shows up, like with cameras or whatever, people get disarmed; they don't want to be on there. It's like they they feel really publicly exposed. Um, when you bring, you know, maybe a recording device or whatever uh, there, it's not quite the same thing. It's not nearly as intrusive. Intrusive, and it can lead um, people to sort of relax. Uh, And then, you know, my training is in print, like I'm a print writer. I worked in newspapers, wire services, and now for online website. But in as much as I love print, that is the foundation of everything I do. I First and foremost, consider myself a writer. Um, Something can be lost in print. Like a story is, can be really two dimensional. It's on the page, it's on the screen, unless the writer is particularly evocative and descriptive Uh, to make it three dimensional, right? Uh, and so I, I think that like podcasts give you, gives you an alternative to when you can hear things, you stick with it, you know, like, you know, it's just a, it's just a really different, uh, way of engaging with people and engaging with stories. And, you know, again, like, I feel like if you like podcasts, like there's something for you, there's something for you out there, no matter what. So, uh, you know, I don't think that's always, I mean, all the mediums have, you know, different ways of reaching people and they're, you know you know, it's not really the medium, it's the work in in and of itself. But, um, I think for me, like, I really liked how intimate it is. Like people really engage with my work in podcasting in a way they never did with Frank. And, um, yeah, that, that's, what's sort of exciting to see people like hear people's voice, like hearing me writing down Clarence Thomas's mama's quotes is not the same as you hearing her talk to you. Right. So, um, yeah,
0: Yeah, and
2: and I say that as well, just because like um you know I'm a Slate Plus member too, so I got to hear some of the you know longer of, of course of yep. course yeah because the other part too is like preparing for this uh this interview I also was interested and in, you know and and I've listened to Slate and and uh, engaged in some of their content over the years um and so I know that they have these additional opportunities for for Plus members. And so I was interested in hearing, like, and, and we'll get to this, I think, in one of the, uh, next questions, but I heard your conversation with, uh, Leah Wright-Ribbore, um, mm-hmm. and, and, um, and other folks as well, and to your, to, you know, question about you know, what is podcasting, uh, the chance to have these, you know, full interviews, uh, that we mm-hmm. can hear that, you know, you, then you realize, oh, wow, this isn't our long you know interview that ultimately probably maybe uses two to three minutes at the most depending on the person yeah i i I don't think i had an interview we interviewed i'll I'll just say 40 people i'll be
1: conservative um maybe less maybe a little less but none of the conversations were shorter than an hour right that's a lot of tape that's a lot of tape you have to make a lot of different choices about what you're going to put how you present it in there so, yeah, man, like there's just, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you listened to the Slate Plus. So even that, I get kind of frustrated. i like, oh, you didn't hear the whole conversation? You still didn't hear the whole conversation, right? Um, but, yeah, man, it's it, it goes on and on and on and on and on. And, yeah, we're, so what you hear is a very, I mean, hopefully, you know, expertly produced, uh, you know, piece of work. But, yeah, we're we're cobbling it together from so much tape. And that's not even counting the archival tape that's out there, too. So.
2: And actually, this is a perfect transition to actually get into um, a question about challenges. So we just talked about it, like if if we take you at the word of 40, everything being at least an hour, that, that's that's a big number, my brother. Yeah, I so mean, no, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm just know what presented you the biggest single challenge to produce this season.
1: I mean, there was so many, man. I mean, like, I just, we got even getting into it. Like, personally, it was very difficult. Like, first, all, I mean, I just, I have a 16-month-old son. I'd never done this a project like this with a child before. Like, just so, I have to be so much more efficient with my time than I used to be. Um, I just, there's no time to waste. So I got to get right to it. Not a lot of time to be, you know, ponderous or, you know, kind of, you know, chase, you know, uh, tangents or whatever. But um, I think probably, though, you. The single biggest challenge was making story choices and figured out who who was going to speak to us. Um, you know, we had to sort of prove to conservatives like uh, you know Danforth or Armstrong Williams whoever that someone from slate dot com, let alone me. Right, you know, like if you to the I'm not famous, but to the extent that anybody knows my profile or heard you know saw my account on Twitter. You might be like, oh, that guy's not going to give this story or Clarence Thomas a fair shake, right? So we had to convince them to no, like, actually, we're capable of that. Like, this is not, I didn't intend this to be a hit piece because I don't think that would be interesting. And that's, there's plenty of that. So, yeah, getting those folks to talk, uh, the timing and staffing of this, like you said, yeah, for you know, all these interviews, you got to distill them, figure, figure out what you want, the writing in and of itself, the recording, um, all that, like, that's a lot, a lot of time, bro. So, and we don't have a very big team. Um, so that part of it, and then just, and we talked about the top here, the evolving nature of the stories about Clarence Thomas this year, Like We just in, in some ways it's like, great, this is awesome. They're driving interest in the story. Stop, don't write anything, don't, don't reveal anything else. Cause I don't want to have to do too much and <laughs> change another script or whatever. Um, so like, you know, sort of the anxiety. Uh, around that stuff too. I was like, oh man, there's more revelation. What else is gonna happen? We're gonna turn up, where's this gonna go? Blah, blah, blah. Like that part of it was also sort of nerve wracking as well. But yeah, I, yeah, probably getting like the likes of Danforth and Armstrong Williams talk. Although I will say um, real quickly is that I, you know, I, I dealt with Armstrong Williams several years before. I wrote a piece about Ben Carson potentially running for president in 2015. And Armstrong Williams was the guy behind that campaign, and so Armstrong Williams neither Ben Carson nor Armstrong Williams uh, helped me with that story. He did not talk to me, he didn't submit to an interview. I wrote the story, finished it, and then a day later, I get a call from Armstrong Williams, and he's like, "Brother, you were really fair. That this is an amazing story, which is also kind of scary." I'm like, "Why does Armstrong at that? The story so much? <laughs> <laughs> like, what's going on here?" Uh, but we. I'm not gonna say we struck up a relationship, but it was just like, okay, things happen. He would call me. I might call him, whatever. And so, when this came, uh, the time came for this, I was able to reach out to him and say, "Hey, I'm I'm working on this. Do you think you can help?" And so he did. So, um, yeah. Anyway, so but then then you got to go from him to like a John Danforth, and I, you know, they are both conservatives, they're both Republicans, but Arshaw Williams and John Danforth don't move in the same circle. So.
2: And, and and actually that to me, this particular point is actually perfect. Even going back to what you're saying about Clarence Thomas and the fact that if we're being truthful and honest with ourselves and the arc of our families, there are Clarence Thomas's it depends on whether or not they voice those kind of opinions publicly or you know, family reunions or other family gatherings, but they're there. He's he's not a foreign object. He comes from black people. Yeah. I mean, and, some of the
1: people that have said the worst things about welfare recipients of black people in my life, right? You know not I mean? 100%. The that, that, that most skeptical, uh, the, the least generous to poor black people often have been black people in my life, right? So yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, he, oh, he's yeah. firmly from that tradition, absolutely. Yeah,
2: and, and so it also makes me think as well, you know, this is a podcast about books. And so I would be remiss to not, you know, ask a question regarding books. And so we had already brought up um uh leah wright Rigor, and so um this is more of an open question when i initially wrote it but since we're already here can you also talk to us about you know your interview with her and also how her book uh may have helped you um in in bringing forth and really contextualizing Clarence thomas
1: Oh, yeah, no, so Leah is great, man. I'm glad you mentioned it because uh, I, I, I knew that the books might come up here. And so, yeah, no, that book, man, is fascinating. at talking about sort of the uh, paradox of like black Republicans, man. And I knew early on that when we did the season that I wanted to kind of stretch our legs and talk a little bit about black conservatism. We didn't necessarily get to do it quite the way that I wanted, but it was like it was a necessity for me. To have her on there and to at least talk about the history of affirmative action and how it came up and yeah i mean you know the idea that affirmative action really has its roots and took off in this country in the nixon administration for instance right like that's not nothing that if you don't study though you would never guess it right um and then yeah uh, so that book was i mean just just so helpful so so important um I mean, you know, she talked a little bit. We didn't even get into it in the podcast, but uh, Jay Parker, the the so-called founder father of the Black conservative movement, he he was founder of something called the Lincoln Institute for Research and Education. And like, part of that institute was a quarterly journal called the Lincoln Review. Clarence Thomas wrote for that. Thomas Sowell wrote for that. Like, pretty much any big name Black conservative that you can think of in America today wrote for that. Um, Like... I mean, it would be fair to say that Clarence Thomas was a protege of Jay Parker, right? Um, so, like, learning that he was steeped in that tradition and came through that pipeline, like that was really good at informing the story that I want to tell. We, as I mentioned earlier, that like black, you know, Clarence Thomas, he did work for white folks and do what white folks wanted to do, but like he was getting his knowledge, his his brain paid by black conservatives. Um, and so, yeah, that that part of the book was you know really important for us. But I mean, there was other books, um, uh, the, you know, that we really, that we leaned on real heavy. Um, and doing this too, of course.
2: Yeah, man. And so, you know, we're talking about, you know, secondary sources, but I'm interested also on the source piece about oral history and in mm-hmm. these interviews that you, uh, did, because it, to me, one of the coolest parts about the podcast was episode one, when you hear like you closing the door, you making the approach. We don't even get to feel how hot it might have been you know for for instance <laughs> especially for someone like yourself who i know you've you know from texas had lived in florida and there's other places dc but you're out in you know you're out in california man so the heat's a little different than it is you know in the gulaguchi uh region so um so take us through the process for you even uh to find where uh clarence thomas's mother uh, Miss Leola Williams and members of the Thomas family live today.
1: So I want to give a couple props here. One, uh, is my producing team: Derek, John, Josh Levine, um, Sophie Summergrad, uh, Sam Kim, Sophie Codner. Um, and I don't think, oh, Joel Meyer, who came on a little bit later. Um, they're the people that went through copious amounts of tape. I forgot about all that stuff. The stuff that you hear at the top of the episode, like, I did wear a mic and I'm knocking on doors and all that stuff, but I didn't, I'm thinking none of that stuff is usable. Like, I'm just like, that's just background noise. That's just audio. I didn't, it never occurred to me that we could use that as content, that we could, you know, put that in the season. Um, so, you know, uh, the, uh, they get a lot of props for that. They saw something in my interactions with those people and knocking on those doors that I didn't even see for myself, which is what, you want know, I talked about working with, as part of a team. Like, I trust them and they deliver. You know what I mean. So like that was a, that was a a, a big part of it. But um, uh, so yeah. So anyway, so that was that was a that was a that was a really important thing. But um, the other piece of it is that Michael Fletcher, who works at ESPN, or technically Fanscape, former Washington Post reporter, he co-authored a book with Kevin Merritt, you know now the uh, L.A. Times uh, top editor. Uh, called supreme discomfort it came out uh, i think t- 2007 which was a biography of clarence thomas and so i read that that was a book that very helpful to put in the season together and i called michael and uh he was just like well if you're gonna go talk to people like i'm just trying to get advice on what to do blah blah, blah. and he was like yo like if you're going to do this like you got to go down there like these are not people you're gonna get on the phone you know you're gonna have to go to savannah and we knew we were gonna to have to go down there anyway, but that just co- sort of cinched it. So I go down there and you, you mentioned it. I actually lived in Atlanta for a couple of years. Atlanta's my favorite city in the country. I love Atlanta. Oh, right? ah, okay,
2: it okay, okay.
1: I, would, I, would, I, would, I would grew up wanting to be a Morehouse kid. Like, yeah, I'm Atlanta's my city. Man. You know what I'm saying, I love it. Uh, which is funny for a dude, I'm so sorry, but when, when you're, we're supposed to have beef, but I like it. Right. <laughs> um, Anyway, so yeah, so I knew going down there, you know, we have all the important tricks, you know, Lexus, Nexus, all this other stuff to get addresses. But, you know, sometimes you just got to knock on doors. And so I was out knocking on doors, interviewing people. And I had an interview with a gentleman you'll know, here in episode one. And again, in episode four, Lester Johnson, a friend offender, uh, Clarence Thompson is, you know, going back to Savannah. And I interviewed him for four hours at his office. And at the end of it, <clears throat> he's like, I think it was Ramadan. He was like, "Yo, I'm going to go. Uh, I got to go to the mosque today," um, and I think he mentioned that he might stop by and see Clarence Thomas's mom. And so immediately, I just get quiet and I'm like, "Let me look up where the where the mosque is," and then I cross referenced it with addresses they were associated with the family. And I was like, "Well, I'm just going to knock on these doors," and that's how we ended up there. That's how I ended up going to Miss Leola's place. Um, so yeah, man, it's just, you know, it's just, <laughs> and it, it requires a lot, you know, you know, I needed the nudge from Michael Fletcher and I needed the tip from, uh, Mr. Johnson, uh, to get there. So yeah, man, there's a lot of
2: different ways you can do this sort of stuff, but, um, it all sort of came together at that time. And it's, and that to me is so interesting because going back to your episode on right time with Balmighty Jones, you had actually mentioned, um, differences between, you know, you're of a different generation than that are coming up like i went to fam so a Mm -hmm. lot of my friends are you know journalists from the j school at fam so as someone who's uh between 30 32 they're of a different generation so you grew up where in the game where going not you know doing cold knocks on people's doors it's a different world than it is now yeah 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 no man i when i remember
1: when I first got to, the, I mean, it always has been there. When I first got to the AP, it was just like, all right, somebody got shot. Go on out there and go see what you can find. Go talk to people, knock on doors. And so that that's a fundamental part of the background and the training that I've always had. And that's the way I find to be easiest uh, to do reporting. Because although, I mean, obviously times are changing. People don't do that sort of interfacing anymore. Like it's, it's scary to go knock on somebody's door. I'm not denying that. But um, I also find that sometimes too that it's much harder to turn down somebody if they've showed up at your front door. Because I've I've done the work of like showing I'm serious. Like I've come from Palo Alto to Savannah. It's harder to get hard to get further apart in this country than Palo Alto and Savannah to make that drive you know, make that flight and that drive. Um, and so if I show up, you know that I'm serious. And that's what I've always thought. Showing up in somebody's front door shows that you're serious. Um, and so yeah, like I mean obviously there's a lot of different ways to report. A pro I don't think ProPublica knocked on that front door. You know what I mean? And they still got a good story, but it's just that's that's what I do. That's my that's the way I like to interface with folks on my interview. So
2: there it is, man. And so um as we wrap things up real quick, uh just uh two more questions here, man. Yeah, sure. Um so I'm very interested to know always so we hear the four episodes, we hear the you know, episodes that y'all have for Slate Plus members and Go become Slate Plus members, y'all. These are good, really helpful um, uh, contexts. Um, And they're also entertaining, too.
1: Well, thank you. Thank
2: you. Of course, of course. But I'm also interested to know, you can't put everything. Clearly, as we spoke about before, you're not going to put 40 hours plus into a four-episode season. So so I want to know, what did you leave on the cutting room floor that you wish could have made the series? So this
1: is a good question. That's really tough. I had to think about this. I mean, I don't know that we left another cutter floor, but it was a it was an earlier outlines. I really wanted to go a little bit longer on Thurgood Marshall and like him being the first black justice, um, and what that meant. Right? Because I mean, the idea that Clarence Thomas inheriting what was Thurgood Marshall's seat was offensive to many black civil rights leaders like on its face. They're like this guy who was at the center of the Brown v. Board of Education, uh, you know, one of the greatest civil rights attorneys of uh, not only our lifetime, but in American history. It um, becomes the first black justice and that this dude, Clarence Thomas, 43 years old, been a federal judge for not even a year, uh, coming up through the Reagan Revolution. That's the guy that's going to replace Thurgood Thomas. Like that with patently offensive to a lot of people. And I wish we could have talked a little bit more about that. And also the fact that Thurgood Thurgood Marshall, can I curse on this podcast? Yes, you can. Oh, okay. Thurgood Thurgood Marshall didn't fuck with Clarence Thomas. You know what I mean? Like he just, you know, I mean, you can go, you can Google the quotes that he has about him, about, you know, black snakes, you know, just as, you know, white snakes or whatever. You know, so, um, yeah, man, I wish we'd had a little bit more time and a little more space to go along on that. And like, if I was going to do a (laughs) a bonus episode or something like that, or throw it way to do like a little, little story length, Uh, I would I would love to to talk a little bit more about Thurgood Marshall because I feel like his legacy I mean we're getting I mean we're getting so far into his you know, I mean it's been almost thirty years since Thurgood Marshall died, man. I bet there's a lot of people that don't know anything about him. And if you go to school in some states you might never learn about him now. You know what I mean? Yep. So, um, I think his story is really important and I wish we could have done more on it, but you know, you got to make choices, right?
2: So that, that was one. Oh yeah, man. So, um, so right now, I think your podcast does as well as any, um, piece of journalism or any other pieces of history that's been written about really understanding how, understanding the, honestly, he's not dead, obviously, but like his legacy. Because his obviously his legacy is still being um, developed now, but we see the clear like skeleton of the future and yeah. how a lot of our future is going to be wrapped in the Thomas court so as we uh, clean up shop here, what do you see right now as Clarence Thomas's legacy on the Supreme Court bench I think maybe even more importantly in African-American life
1: Wow, his legacy. Okay,
2: man. Um,
1: that is a really hard question. Um, you know, I think that his legacy is going to be that that he was a useful that that America that American Republicans and conservatives found in him a useful tool for their project of rolling back the civil rights advancements of a previous generation, that they they sought out, they were looking, I mean, the, the people that are against affirmative action, um, they don't believe in race-based preferences, that they looked, they were looking for somebody specifically there would be a vessel through which they could do this project of, you know, uh, rolling back the, the excesses of the 60s and the 70s, and that he was successful in doing that. Like, whatever you think about Clarence Thomas, and you know what he's done, and where he's from, and his qualifications to be on the bench or whatever—it's hard to argue that he hasn't been successful. You know, in in his project. I mean, affirmative action is dead, gutted through the Voting Rights Act. Um, you know, uh, uh, Dobbs. Uh, you know, so Roe v. Wade has been overturned. Um, all the things that they wanted, all the things that he set out to do, uh, at the behest of Ronald Reagan and. And George Bush, the original, um, he did, and um, so you know, I I wouldn't go so far as to call him an enemy of his people, but um, you know, you're sort of looking at like what the um, a person that has be- become so embittered and so far removed from his people, and like what they can be capable of if they get a little bit of power, man. Yeah. and uh, so I think that ultimately that's going to be a legacy. He's going to be you know wider most important black american figures in history and it's going to be because he helped to uh, uh to destroy you know many of the games of the civil rights movement. and uh you know hopefully you know there'll be another generation we'll get a chance to you know get these games back or whatever or you know recapture some of what has been lost but um you know i think that that is his legacy he won I was warm, man.
2: He's, and speaking of that, like I, I want to also say this. Uh, one of the things that, you're, that your season did for me was I had actually never known Jenny Thomas called Nita yeah. Hill. I'm so glad you said that. I had never, and obviously, I thought that was
1: widely known, and I was like, you know, really need to put that in there. People remember that story, but I'm I'm so glad that you say that because more
2: people have said that, and I'm like, okay, I was stupid. People did not, re- they missed that when that came out. I, you know, I, so I was born, the confirmation was, what, 91? 91, Ninety So I was born the year after. And so, like you, I knew who Clarence Thomas was, effectively, the majority of my life. Like yeah, right. In part because of the punchline. But the moment that inaugurated him into the broader, you know, American public through the 91 confirmation hearing, I had no idea that there was a moment in my life when which Jenny Thomas yeah. all, yeah. and and the fact that uh, y'all played it and you get to hear, it, I'm thinking like, yo, what the hell is? Yeah. First of all, what's the hell wrong with this? Is yeah, she crazy, man? It's great. That's like like, like, she, it, right? yeah. like how do you gonna call this lady? How are you gonna call Professor Hill? And if I'm not mistaken, this was not that long ago from like now, right? This I would say 2010 or 2011 it was something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah like. And so to me, um, like, I don't know who is responsible specifically about putting it in, in in terms of you and your team. But kudos to y'all, because for someone like me who recently turned 31, that was like, because we knew that, because also there was a documentary that had come out in front and that yeah, right. almost coincided at the same time. So I actually think for listeners, I think you should both listen and subscribe to uh, Slate and Slate Plus, but also to read to 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 watch the documentary because I think that they that they complement each other yeah. in in really good ways, man. And so, Joel, one last question, man. Any more slow burns for you? I don't know. I don't know. That's a good
1: question. Uh, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Okay. yeah uh, I you know I'm off right now. I don't know when this is running. Uh, but I'm off right now for a, a while, and I'm just kind of taking time to recharge and handle some stuff that I dropped. But, um, you know, I want to keep doing ambitious work. And, and whether that's slow burn or something else, I guess that's to be determined. But I've already kind of got an idea in my head about what I want to do next. And so whoever wants it, you know something, uh, am saying, get it.
2: <laughs> hey man Well, the airways, the new books in African American studies can always be a launching board for some of these exploratory ideas, man. So after you recharge your battery, and 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 do do what you got to do, man. Come back and you know let's chop it up again because I would love to spread. say brother that this was a honestly. Let me tell you, bro, this was uh Sometimes you talk about ambitious ideas. I didn't know who you were. I knew who you were, but I didn't know you like that. So shout out to Twitter slash X. We're making this possible because, <laughs> you know, man, like I said, I've been following your work, man. And like I said, shout out to Bomani Jones. Don't know if you're going to hear this, man, but but thank you for connecting uh, Joel from Missouri City to me because, you know, whether it's uh, the look, the trivia game that y'all had maybe a year ago, man, y'all. Oh, yeah, with Dominic amazing and Mina.
1: Man, look, I also I, just, I was like, I was like, man, everybody thought Mina was going to beat me. And I'm like, why not think Mina going to beat me in? a sports training character So well, i just i don't know i kind of you know i was <laughs> joking about it but i'm like wait why, why y'all think she's just gonna beat me out of her hand you know what i'm saying so anyway so
2: yeah so i was kind of thought people got thank you yeah brother and, and y'all now of course man one of the one of the best minds in all the sports man and especially yeah. looking at football man so so shout out to amina cons as well and so today y'all thank you so much for listening to this episode of new books in african-american studies and if you've gotten to this point you don't know who i'm talking to we're talking with uh joel anderson staff writer from uh slate also he's the co-host of hang up and listen another great podcast uh that is in my uh feed and he's also the host of seasons three six not nine but eight of slow burn <laughs> and so on this episode bed i'm just really happy that we had a chance to talk with you man and uh god bless you and your family and i'm really looking forward to our next conversation and uh you know we and also man i don't usually do this man but where can folks find you to to plug some of your, your your work man i appreciate you saying that man so yeah i mean i
1: don't know how long i'm gonna be on x or twitter i mean who knows but i mean like you can't re- replicate all these dynamics on Threads. you know what i mean so i don't know but i'm on uh twitter slash x by joel anderson oh uh, you can you know uh find my work on slate.com uh, if you just look up slate and joel anderson you'll find links to my work um i've worked at Buzzfeed and espn and other places so yeah i, I need to probably get a website together maybe one day yeah. something i don't know uh because i can't keep up with all that stuff but um yeah man so that's that's where you can tend to find me so uh yeah man look right. no, bro like thank you for having me, man it's always you know a pleasure to chop it up man and we you know we've been chatting back and forth the last couple years or whatever man so i'm glad glad we probably got to do this when you come out to the bay man come holler at your boy
2: all right hey man i will man i will and so y'all once again this is adam mcneil from new books in african american studies until next time y'all over and out